well. Well, grab your Bibles. Let's go. We're getting back into the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 this morning. So I want you to follow along. We're going to read a section of that. So grab yours or turn on your Bible, however you want to do that. And, uh, and we will read that together, okay? Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I want to give attention to the reading of the Word as Paul instructs us. And, um, and so let's follow along as I begin reading Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 18. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's a group of Christian Jews, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you, will, uh, by, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, uh, this ought to sound familiar to you. If you've read the book of Acts or if you were here last Sunday and Stephen talked about what happened with Cornelius and Peter going or them meeting together and, and then him preaching, basically what Luke does is repeat the same story all over again. Now that's interesting on a few levels. It's interesting that he would do that and not summarize it, but it's, it's, it's noteworthy because you have to understand that in Luke's day as he's writing the book of Luke, as he's writing the book book of Acts, it's not as though he sat down at his computer and could just type out as much as he possibly wanted to say. He had to think very critically about what he would include and not include. So you understand that these books were written on scrolls. Most scholars believe that the Luke and Acts, they would have been two different scrolls. They're roughly the same length in terms of number of words and how much space it would have taken up. And they're roughly the length of a standard scroll. Now, this would have cost money. This would have meant, you know, there's not unlimited ink. In fact, I was reading something this week that said that for Paul to write the book of Romans, to get the supplies he needed to write the book of Romans would have cost him about $2,200 to do that. So this isn't just right. I'm not, I've got a computer. I can just type out everything I feel like saying, and this is what I'm going to send out to everybody, you know, in an email, and y'all can read all my thoughts about everything I want to say. 
Luke had to edit. He had to think. God inspiring Luke told him, don't just write this story once, write it in its entirety twice. Now that's odd. Why would he do that? Well, if you think back to your education, some of us, we, you know, you, you went elementary and then middle school and then high school and then college and beyond, right? And in those first four phases, elementary and then middle school, high school, it seems like you keep repeating some of the thing, same things over and over again, right? You took whatever, life science, and you took it again and then again and again for general ed, right? Why does our educational system do this? Because they know something about us that one of the best ways we learn is simply by repetition, that there are certain things we must know. So when we look at Acts chapter 11 and, and Luke repeats everything almost that he said in Acts chapter 10, we have to conclude there is something going on that we must not miss, even if it sounds basic to us. There are some things that we are apt to walk away from. There are some things that we are apt to, to you know, not really listen to. We need re-education, if you will. We need to come back to these truths again and again and again. Well, this is what's happening when we get to Acts chapter 11. He doesn't summarize. He tells us the whole story over again. So what are we supposed to see? What is it that, that God is trying to teach to Peter trying to teach the early church, trying to teach to Theophilus, the one to whom Luke wrote these books. What's he trying to teach to us? Well, I think there's a couple things and I'm gonna do some broad strokes because I'm not gonna preach all the way through the Cornelius narrative again. I just wanna, I wanna point out some big rocks that I think we're supposed to not miss. And the first one is simply that Peter, we, Theophilus, we all, the church needed to remember that the gospel is for everyone. This is the whole point of him saying things like in verses 1 through 12. This is him saying that, 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 you know, the Spirit told me to go making no distinction. This is the whole point of the vision, the sheep, the animals, all these kinds of things happening that what the Spirit of God is telling him, what he's telling us, what he wants the church of the ages to know in unequivocal terms is the gospel is for everyone. It is to go out indiscriminately and we make no distinction in who it's preached to. And so this is what's happening. We see this great sheet, right? Lower down from heaven. It's the, the idea behind the sheet. It's actually a word that's used for a ship's sail. So you can imagine this is a very big sheet. It's lowered down by its four corners. It's filled with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean, birds, reptiles, beasts, all this kind of stuff. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And notice this, Peter needs to hear this message three times. He's gonna hear the command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's gonna respond to that command and then the voice is gonna come back and tell him, don't think that way. He's gonna hear the command. He's gonna respond to the command. The voice is gonna come back and say, don't think that way. Three times. Peter, do not think like that. And then, no coincidence, three men, three Gentiles show up. And what's the point? That the gospel isn't just a Jewish thing. The gospel is for everyone. 
that we don't distinguish so that what we ought to see, what we're going to see in Scripture, what we're going to, when we get all the way to the end of, of our Bible and we get to Revelation, we see that what God is doing is surrounding the throne of Jesus, the throne of God, with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, that the gospel has now gone out. It's now saved people from everywhere. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not just a Gentile thing. It's not just a male thing or a female thing. It's not for rich or just for poor. It's not for just educated or uneducated. It's for everybody. So the thing we ought to see, if it's true, is that it actually happens. So we should be able to look around in a church and go, what do we see? Do we see white faces? Yes, they should be there. Do we see Latino faces? Yes. Do we see Asian faces? Yes. Do we see, do we see uh, Middle Eastern faces? Yes. Do we see Indian faces? Yes. Do we see Islander faces? Yes. We should see people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is one of the mysteries that, that Paul deals with in Ephesians when he says, I mean, these, these watching powers are looking down on the church going, how in the world is this happening? How can people from such diverse backgrounds come together. What's the answer, church? The gospel. This is just what it does. It's for all people everywhere. This is the first thing that we've got to be reminded of. And I, I find it interesting, actually. Look at this. I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of walk you through the last uh, three, four verses. Look at verse 15. Okay, so he's given us the whole narrative. He says, man, I started preaching Corleonis and I, we got, we got connected. I, I began to kind of tell him what the message of the gospel was. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. This is a Gentile Pentecost, we might say. And then verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus told the disciples before he left them, I'm going to bring to mind the things that I taught you. Here's, it's happening. It's happening in the moment. And what's stunning to Peter is this, that when he said, I'm going to baptize you with water, that's a quote from Acts chapter one, verse five, by the way. And if you went back and read Acts chapter one, you would, you would be reasonable to assume, it would be reasonable for you to assume that who, who Jesus was talking to was the disciples, this group of 12 people, or maybe the broader one, maybe the group of 120 that we find in Acts chapter two. But you'd be stunned to find out that when Jesus said, I will baptize you, he meant the you to include not just the ones I'm talking to you right now. This is Jew and Gentile. This is why Peter's so stunned. This is why this is such a momentous occasion. This book, in some ways we could say, is about the salvation of two people. It's about the salvation of Paul, who becomes Saul, and it's about the salvation of Cornelius. And how different would the church look today if both of those salvations hadn't happened? If Cornelius hadn't been saved and we didn't have this, then maybe Christianity would just be kind of a new Jewish thing, but it's not. If Paul hadn't been saved, it was only a Cornelius thing, we think maybe it's just a Gentile thing, but it's not. The gospel's for everyone. That's the first big principle that I think we're just not supposed to miss here or in the rest of Scripture. But the second one is, is, is similar to it, and it's that Peter needed to be reminded that the gospel is powerful, 
It's just flat out the message of the gospel. Do you notice he says, and he said it back in Acts chapter 10, that go, Cornelius, find this guy, bring him to me. He has a message by which you will be saved. Not he's going to bring you material provision, not a social justice campaign. He has a message and this message is so powerful, it will save you, Cornelius. Because the gospel is powerful. The gospel saved Cornelius. It saved Saul. It saved a soldier. It saved a scholar. It saved a separatist. It saved a seeker, we might say. All of these things. And God did all of it by his gracious initiative. Both Paul and Cornelius forgiven of their sins. Both Paul and Cornelius baptized. Both Paul and Cornelius welcomed into the family of God. There's no distinction because of what the gospel does. The gospel is not just impartial, the gospel is powerful. This is why Paul later on is gonna write in Romans chapter one, you all, some of you know it very well. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not to the Jew only, but also to the Greek. Everybody. We all can get in on this. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your education. It's not only impartial. It's not only making no distinction. It's powerful. And hear me now. It's the message that's powerful. Do you understand that? Some of you have lost faith in the power of the gospel. It's easy to do. Like we've got a loved one who's far from God and we begin to think, you know what they need? What they need is this book. What they need is I've got I've to get them to listen to this podcast. What they need is I've got to get really schooled in apologetics so that I can sort of argue them into a corner and then they'll cry uncle and they will become saved. No, what they need, the Bible says, they need the message of the gospel. And that seems foolish to us and this is exactly what the Bible says. It seems crazy. But this message is powerful. If you're a Christian today, it's because you heard the gospel and were saved. Because the gospel is powerful for salvation. Now, here's what I think is important. He tells this whole story, right? Verses basically 1 through 15, 16. And then he draws, he says, here's the conclusions that we, the early church, came to based on the whole episode with Cornelius. What are the conclusions that the church draws? What does Peter say? Here's the lessons. Here's our summary. Here's what we're supposed to understand. Look at verse 17. If then, there's a conclusion, right? If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed Okay, so I'm noticing some things. I see these commonalities. Then he says, here's the conclusion. Who was I to stand in God's way? That's conclusion number one. Conclusion number two, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then, there's conclusion number two, to the Gentiles, God, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So let's talk about each of those. Okay, the first conclusion they draw, and let me rephrase it this way. I think what Peter would be saying is this. We must not allow our traditions to stand in the way of God's redemption. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Right, that is that we cannot allow, 
we cannot allow the traditions that we hold to to be the thing that keeps people from hearing the gospel. Now, I'm going to say this more than once, so hear me clearly. Peter is not saying we must negate the clear teaching of Scripture in order to make the gospel more palatable to people. He's not saying anything like that. Right? He's not saying we overturn all of the Old Testament. No, what he's saying is I can't stand in God's way. There are things that I learned. I came, the circumcision party said to me what we've been taught all our lives. You're consorting with non-Jews. You can't do that. You can't eat with them. You can't invite them into your home. You can't go to their home. They're impure. We are the pure people of God. They eat unholy, unclean food. We eat the right food. You must separate yourself from them. Now hear me, that is not what the Bible says. That is the attempt of rabbis to help Jewish people um, apply the idea of being holy people of God. So, so, So Jesus comes along and says, here's the problem, you Jewish teachers of the law, You teach, listen to how he says this, you teach as doctrine the traditions of men. In other words, what you do is elevate these traditions that have crept up over the years and you teach them as though it's it's the rule of God, as though it's thus saith the Lord. Okay, so, so let, let's talk about this. So, so traditions, we all have them. Some of you have Christmas traditions and New Year's traditions. You, you, know, you have little kids, you have bedtime traditions. You have summertime traditions, all these traditions. And that's good. In fact, traditions in some ways help us simplify life, help us navigate some of life. But the problem is, is when traditions turn into commandments. So let me give you an example. If I could go to scripture, I could give you a broad principle from scripture and I could show you this, that this is what scripture teaches. Scripture would say to every Christian in this room, one of the commands for you is that you must dress modestly. Now that would be, that would be an appropriate command to give to the people of God. But now I say that, and you can think to yourself, okay, so what does that mean? Like, am I dressed modestly right now? I hope so, right? Is, that, I mean, is, is this person, is that person, is he, is she? I mean, right, we, we begin to think, are we obeying? So what happens? I'm a dad, so my wife and I, our kids are younger, whatever, we might say things like this. Okay, for the Lewis children, we're gonna say, here's what modesty looks like. Here's what you cannot wear. We, you know, here's what you, you, you can wear, things like that. We're, we're gonna regulate that for them. In other words, we're gonna take the broad principle and we're gonna apply it and say, Lewis children, here's what that looks like. Now, now there's nothing wrong with that. That's simply me trying. That's a good impulse. I'm trying to apply the word of God in practical ways to my children, to my family, to my own life. Well, this is where all traditions come from. Uh, Traditions around scripture, right? So here's the problem. Here's when it becomes toxic, right? It would be toxic if I took any tradition and said, you are disobeying God if you don't, let's say, celebrate Christmas the way we celebrate. You're disobeying God if your modesty, if your rules of modesty don't match my rules for modesty. You see what I mean? 
so that, so that now I have codified my application of that and now I'm teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. This is what Peter looks and says, this is what's happening. I will stand in God's way because I've been told, here's the traditions handed down to me. Don't consort with non-Jews. And I'm gonna try to keep this message, this proclamation of the free grace of God coming to a people of every tribe, nation, tongue because I don't wanna proclaim it to them because I'm calling them unclean. I can't go near them. God, you know I've never touched anything. I don't go into Gentile houses. I don't do that sort of thing. So, so Christian... One of the things we have to be very careful of is that we don't elevate things, we don't elevate traditions that keep people from hearing the message of redemption. Now, let's be really clear. We're not talking, when I stand where God stands on an issue, I'm not standing in your way. Okay, so here's our temptation. In fact, we, 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 we use words like repentance. We'll talk that in a moment. We, we stand in places and we think, you know what I've got to do? I've got to, I've got to get rid of some of these things so that it makes the message of the gospel more palatable to people. No. No, we take a stand where Scripture takes a stand. But even in, here's the nuance. Here's the difficulty, Christian. One of the things we have to be careful to do is realize the gospel must go out indiscriminately. And what I don't say to anybody who wants to walk through the back door of the Christian or who wants to receive or wants to hear or is curious about, I don't say to them, first, you have to obey all the ethical rules that I see in Scripture in order for you to qualify to hear the gospel. Do you follow what I'm saying here? I can't require you to start behaving in a way that the Bible will call you to once you're a Christian. But on this side of it, I'm going to let this go out indiscriminately. Now, once they become Christians, then the Holy Spirit goes to work in their life, conforming them to the image and, and getting, getting rid of some of these sins and things like this and the ethical behaviors that are in violation of Scripture. So we don't overturn. Peter is not standing and saying, you know what? Let's, let's get rid of anything that's offensive that'll keep it. That's not the issue. It's that I, there have been traditions erected around the proclamation of the, of the, of the good news or around this, this Jewish tradition that are keeping other people from hearing the gospel. We must never let that happen. Okay, so that's the first conclusion. We can't allow our traditions to stand in God's way. But look at the second thing, last, last part of verse 18, when he says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So he looks and says, this is incredible. Like, here's our conclusion. God is doing something. The way we know that is that he's granted them repentance that leads to life. Now, there's something I want us to, uh, uh, to chase in that, that it's repentance is a gift that leads to life. That's how Peter says it. That, that's how Luke describes the conclusion of the assembly. They look and say, this is a gift. God has granted a gift to people in giving them repentance. Now, we don't think of repentance like that, do we? 
Why don't we think of repentance as a gift? Because we have this idea about repentance that it's judgmental, that it, you know, it's it, it kind of old-fashioned sounding. But what's repentance? Repentance, it simply means to change your mind or maybe more accurately to have your mind changed. Now, the reason I want to phrase it that way is because you got, you got to understand, it's not easy to change your mind. But let's, let's say it this way. So, so like everybody, everybody in here, you believe like to your core certain things. And the way you know what you really believe is how you live. We could say it this way. Everyone in here is working off a mental map, right? This is how I'm supposed to live my life. These are my convictions. Here's where I'm right. Here's where everybody else is wrong. I'm gonna stick to these things. This is what I believe. And so it's not a matter of me walking up to you and going, well, look at my map. And if it differs from your map, like, don't you like my map better? It's prettier, it's nicer, it makes better sense to me. How come you won't follow my map, right? What's wrong? Why won't they do that? Because they have to be convinced, so convinced, in fact, that they will tear up their old map and go, this is garbage. And I want this map. Now, how does that happen? That's not easy. How do you go from tearing up your old map and grabbing the new map. Something, maybe better yet, someone has to convince you that it's right. This is why the Bible unequivocally says that conversion is a miracle. Conversion is a gift. Why? Because God is the one doing the convincing. God is letting you see that the current map you're looking at is trash. It'll lead you, it'll kill you. It'll lead you to destruction. He opens your eyes. Ah, that's the right map. And so what's happening in conversion? You're repenting. You're ripping up the old map. You're believing. You're grabbing hold of the new map and you're not just grabbing it. You're going, this is now telling me how to live. This is the way of Jesus. This is why Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, the life. Follow me. I got the map. I, I mean, just, just stay in my train. I'll take you home. I'll get you where the deepest desires of your heart are wanting to go. Your map is going to kill you. So what they do, this is why it's a gift. This is why they see it that way. It's a gift. Because imagine... Like it's God saying, I'm being kind to you. Like, do, do you agree that if you had a map that said, here's where the treasure is, and that map was wrong, and somebody said, let me show you the right map and gave you a correct treasure map so you could actually find the treasure, that that's a gift. That isn't judgmental. That's not angry. That's great. This is why Paul's gonna say, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? Like he's trying, he's, he's like, look, follow, I'll do this, I'll be so kind. And he says, then he goes on to say, because you're, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you store up wrath for yourself. You're just gonna go to your own destruction. No, I want my map. I don't need Jesus' help. I don't want God's help. So something's got to change your mind. And that's the gift of repentance. But how does it lead to life? Because you let go of the old map. 
You grab hold of the new treasure map, right? And you walk towards a new life. See, sometimes in Scripture, let me just say this just as you're reading Scripture, sometimes you will see repent and believe the gospel. Jesus, if you want a summary of the message of Jesus, go to Mark chapter 1. After John the Baptist had been put in prison, it says Jesus came into Galilee preaching, and here's a summary of his message. The, the, the time is at hand, or the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's both. But sometimes you just get believe. Sometimes you just get repent. Why do the biblical writers do that? Because they understand you will not believe something new unless you let, unless you let go of something old. There's the repentance. And, and you're, you're not repenting. You, there's no way. You don't, you don't turn away from, from the map of your life. You don't turn away from the way you think everything works into just emptiness. You turn from something to something. That's why they can say sometimes just repent. That's why he can look at the Gentiles and say, God gave them repentance. Something happened where we now see them letting go of their idols, letting go of their life map, letting go of the way they thought they could make it to God. And now they've embraced Jesus and they're following him now. Their repentance led to life. So there it is. The gospel's for everyone, including you. The gospel is powerful. And all you have to do because of God's grace working in you is repent and believe. And hear me, I want to be very clear on this. There is no salvation without repentance. Have you repented? What does that mean? Have you, I don't mean do you just feel guilty. See there, Paul's going to say there's a kind of sorrow that leads to death. It doesn't do anything, but he says there's a godly sorrow, a sorrow that I've been chasing this other way, a sorrow that I spent so long believing this is the right map, so long that I, I've been chasing other gods, so long that I was abandoned to my sin. He says there's a godly sorrow that says I'm so sick of that, I'm so disgusted by that, that it now turns me away from it and it turns me toward Jesus. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance that leads to life. Have you repented? See, if all you've done is say, man, I just want heaven. That's salvation to me. Then you haven't turned your back on sin in the first place. Salvation is you repent, you believe, and you follow. You repent of your way, you believe in Christ and his way, and you follow in that path. Have you done that? If you have, praise God. If you haven't, I hope you'll do that today. And Christian, let me say something to you. Like I said, some of you have sort of given up. Like I, there's people that are just too far from God. So how ought we to pray? What ought we to do? It's not a matter of boning up on your apologetic skills. Great if you can do that. Those were never meant to 
convince people of the truth. God must do the convincing. So we pray, God, give me boldness to preach the gospel. Give me boldness to say this foolish message of Christ and the forgiveness of sin and what he did on the cross and proclaim that and how it changed my life. And now, and now God, you do the work that I'm incapable of doing. You regenerate the heart. You cause the belief. You bring about the repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is encouragement. There, thank you, Lord, that there are things that we can hold on to, God. We thank you that you don't just tell us once, you reiterate over and over so that we don't miss the message. We don't miss the message that there is nobody in our sphere of influence that is too far from you. There is nobody that should not hear the gospel, that we will continue to preach that and live that and speak that as we're able. We pray you give us boldness to do that because, God, we also know it's powerful and that people would be transformed by the power of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room this morning who are far from you, who have not repented and believed. Today might be the day when that happens. That God, they would realize, man, the map they're following, they've tried, they've tried, they've tried, and the treasure is so elusive. God, they'd see there's a map that leads directly to Jesus and Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And that by following hard after him, this is what will bring us everything that we're searching for. So God, I pray, change hearts and minds today. God, ultimately you have to do that. You must convert. It's, salvation belongs to you. But I pray that as you do that, God, people, people would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. They would repent, they would turn, they would believe. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name.